0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and his church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Oh, what a joy to be together again, and we can't wait till we can be together in person soon, soon. Oh, let's pray together. Spirit of God, would you come and open our eyes to see Jesus more clearly today? Open our ears to hear your words to us in this moment, and let this be more than information, but may we be transformed by the work of your Spirit into the very image of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, have you ever had an until? moment. You know, things were going so well until, like, we were having so much fun throwing rocks into the road until we hit that guy's car. (laughs) Or that relationship was going so well until he met my dad. (laughs) Or that vacation was going so well until we went to the ER. Maybe school was going so well until that statistics class. Of course, sometimes these until moments are a little bit more weighty than that. My life was great until the cancer diagnosis, until the divorce, until my mom died, until he lost his job, until the shooting. Most of us, if we think about it, have had at least one, probably more, until moments. Some of them are small, but some of them are life-changing. Some of them we can cope with. Some of them just leave us feeling lost and hopeless and alone and afraid. Some are more individual, but some are more family-oriented or community-focused. What's your until moment? As followers of Jesus, we're not immune to these In fact, there is an until moment in our Bible text this morning, one that impacted both an individual and a community. Things were going really well for the church. And you remember this from a couple summers ago when you did a whole summer series on the book of Acts. And so you saw the stories of these marvelous conversions of 3000 people coming to know the Lord on the day of Pentecost. The Samaritans, the Ethiopian, Saul, Cornelius, the word of God was spreading. And of course, there were difficulties like the whole story with Stephen, but overall there was great gospel progress. The book of Acts is about to turn and start describing the missionary activity of Paul. Things were going so well until. How should we respond in our until moments? Our Bible passage today offers some help and some hope for us. And as we go through this passage together this morning, I'd like you to pay attention to a couple different themes and images uh, that the writer is is kind of wrestling with here. One is is the idea of two different kingdoms, a kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And the second one is the how juxtaposed these are, the, the human and the divine element of the lives of faith of these folks. So we're going to start off with uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and I do encourage you to... Um, If you have your Bible handy, to take it out and to follow along in the passage here. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Well, just a little bit of background. Some of this seems obscure, uh, but these details are actually really important. And Luke, the author, is setting the stage for us to really understand what's happening here. The Jewish, Jewish masses really hated Herod's family. Herod came from a line of bad rulers Um, his great his grandfather actually was the one if you remember in the whole uh, nativity story who killed all of the babies under two years old in bethlehem Um, and so he comes from this family and he he feels like he's always trying to win the favor of the jewish people Um, and so his job is kind of to preserve the status quo and to make rome happy and to make the jewish people happy so he had to show rome that he wouldn't tolerate dangerous sectarian movements and then he had to show the Jewish people that he was standing up for them and for their traditions, and so he first went after John, one of the twelve disciples. Sorry, James, one of the twelve disciples, and had him killed just to test the waters and see how the people responded. And of course, the people responded well. Get a minor leader first, and with this response, then he proceeded to go to one of the main leaders, perhaps the main leader. Uh, to strike at the top with Peter. The Feast of Unleavened Bread actually started on Passover and it was a week-long feast. And according to Jewish law, people couldn't be executed or have trials or be sentenced during that feast. And so uh, because this public execution would be offensive during a holy season, Herod, uh, Herod planned to make a spectacle of Peter and have a show trial where it would be kind of a warning to those who might uh, rise in insurrection to the throne and he didn't want to be embarrassed by Peter's escape so he took these great precautions lots of soldiers guarding Peter so this you you can get the the feeling that this was hopeless the christian community was facing something really grave and bleak they had just prayed for James and he didn't Uh, he, He wasn't rescued by the Lord. And so faith here is really being pushed to its limits. There's a great crisis here for the early Christian community. What would they do? Would they try to make or orchestrate a jailbreak? Would they try to help him escape somehow? Well, let's read in verse five what their response was. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the community's hope here was in God, and they actually prayed for a miracle. That was their response. And so the first thing that we learn about these until moments and how to handle them is that prayer is the natural response of God's people, and it's the normal context for God's miraculous work. Prayer is the natural response of God's people, and it's the context for God's miraculous work. Now, this might get obscured a little bit in our English text, but these verb tenses in verse five are important because Peter was being kept an indefinite kind of, he was kept over a period of time and prayers were being made for him. This was a continuous action. These were ongoing things. They were lasting for several days. And another key word here is an adjective that might get lost to us as well if we're just reading quickly through the passage, and that is earnest prayer. This is not a prayer that's kind of flippant and offered casually. This is the word that described Jesus' prayer actually in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. There's an urgency to this prayer. There's an intensity, there's a zeal to this prayer that sets it apart from a normal prayer that we might think of. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Have you ever prayed, cried out from a place of desperation, from the deepest parts of your soul that it's almost like an aching in your gut? This is not half-hearted prayer in passing. Oh Lord, would you cultivate in us a sense of this kind of prayer? Early church father John Chrysostom notes about this verse He said they did not divide into factions, talking about the Christian community, or they didn't make an uproar, but instead they turned to prayer, that true alliance which is invincible. In this, they sought refuge. So I think this shows us what we do in these desperate until kinds of moments. Now, yes, there is a place for activism. There is a place for demonstration. There's a place for calling for justice. There's a place for good legislation. We don't minimize that one bit, but the key activity of the church, something that we offer that no one else in the world can offer is this prayer, this continual coming before the Lord, an intense, zealous, urgent kind of prayer. I'm sure you've heard this common objection and some of you even hold this objection in your heart even if you haven't verbalized it but prayer is a cop out. Like you're not doing anything. You're just praying. That's not taking care of anything. And we start to believe that because we hear it so much. People saying we don't want your thoughts and prayers. Actually, they need our thoughts and prayers. Because This kind of prayer we're talking about, not the flippant kind of, I'm just going to do this for doing its sake, but this kind of unified, fervent, corporate prayer of the gathered people of God is the single most powerful weapon on the face of the earth against the powers of evil. We owe it to people to pray these kinds of prayers. Now, two years ago, our, our bishop, Stuart, uh, in November went to preach in Nigeria, and he preached to thousands, and hundreds of people made commitments to Christ. Many of people were confirmed in the church and had uh, released in their lives gifts to serve Jesus and his church. It's a great gospel moment and a great demonstration of God's power. The kingdom was advancing, and then he had an until moment. First, we received news of dehydration then kidney stones, then malaria, and things started really to look bleak for him. What did the church do? She prayed Mm -hmm. in small groups, in living rooms, in conference rooms, behind closed doors, gathering to pray, and praying not flippant prayers, but praying with urgency, praying with intensity, praying with zeal. Now, some of you and for good reasons. For some of you, this is hard. And you're not sure if you believe it even. Because it feels really risky to start wading into these waters. It, it feels safer to just do something ourselves, something that I have control over. I can go do this thing. When I pray, I'm giving up control. And I'm saying, I'm dependent. And I need someone else to come and intervene on my behalf. I think there's a gentle invitation from the Lord for you this morning. And it's not a coercive thing that's put on you and and meant to heap shame or guilt on you, but it's a gracious, gentle invitation to come and to come to the Lord with a childlike dependence on him. And you don't have to do this alone. I think there's an invitation to come and find another person who maybe you respect, who has prayed these kinds of prayers and you've, you've heard them before, we're we're called to do this together in community. So while they were praying fervently during Peter's last night, at least what Herod was thinking was his last night, their prayer was being answered, although unbeknownst to them. And we're going to pick up here in verse 6. And keep in mind in this section, the this two kingdom imagery that I mentioned earlier, we're going to read 6 through 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, wrap your cloak around you and follow me and he went out and followed him he didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real but he thought he was seeing a vision when they had passed the first and second guard they came to the iron gate leading into the city it opened for them of its own accord and they went out and along one street and immediately the angel left him when peter came to himself he said Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Notice the focus here on the work of the Lord and Peter's kind of bewilderment and kind of sleepily walking through these commands from the angel the chains are falling off normally it would be enough to be handcuffed to one soldier he was actually handcuffed to two the chains are falling off gates are opening Peter's passing through three lever- three uh, levels of security and all of a sudden he's free it kind of reminds me of getting the kids ready sometimes to, to go out the door from school did you remember this do this are you because they're they're half sleeping and half awake. The emphasis here is definitely not on Peter. The emphasis is on the power of God delivering him. And so here's the second thing that we learn about these until moments. We learn that the delivering power of God is greater than the enslaving power of evil. The delivering power of God is greater than the enslaving power of evil. If we think about the whole story in Acts, the story of the early church was one of expansion and then opposition. They would grow and then people would come against them. But the assurance was that the power of evil will never prevail against the church of Jesus. So there are these two kingdoms at play. There's the kingdom of the world and then there's the kingdom of God represented in the church. And each of them have their weapons and you see the weapons in this story. For one, their weaponry is the power of the sword and the security of prison along with these tactics of intimidation and fear. Those are the weapons of this earthly, worldly kingdom. For the kingdom of God and the church, their weapon is the delivering power of God, the power of God that's actually invoked in prayer. We have the true king, Jesus, and we have the official king, Herod, and Jesus' as king has been announced in the book of Acts in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And the local king who's most threatened by this has done his worst to thwart it. And his worst cannot work. The true king is vindicated against the sham king. And after this, in the book of Acts, Jesus will be announced as king of the whole world. Now, this is good news for us in a world where it sure looks like the powers of evil are winning. Where Muslim Fulani herdmen are killing Christians in Nigeria day after day. Where so many in our country and around the world are addicted to opioids, to alcohol, to other drugs. When we open the news again and there are more actions of racism, of violence, when the coronavirus seems to still be (laughs) wreaking havoc on our country and the world, it doesn't look like sometimes God's kingdom is winning. But we take heart knowing that God's power to deliver is stronger than evil's power to enslave. And this power is unleashed when God's people pray. This, friends, is why prayer is not a cop-out. It is the very means by which the power of God is unleashed against the power of evil. And why it's so important for us to pray, to pray fervently, to pray zealously, expecting God to come and do his God things and restore and deliver and heal and set free. Let's pick up in verse 12. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. This is hilarious. They said to her, you are out of your mind, But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The church of Jerusalem was too big to meet in one place. And so it had these different houses in which the church would meet to pray and to fellowship. And Mary's house obviously was a large one and a well-known one because Peter went there right away. And it was natural for him to do that. And even though it was late at night, the people were assembled together and they were praying. It just goes to show again that the natural context for God's people and the work of the Lord is prayer. And these people were praying consistently, fervently, zealously. this is so important for us to, to get I think today. There was a Jewish belief that a person's either a person's guardian angel could assume that person's bodily appearance this is, so that might be something that was going on or the belief that after a person died, that person's spirit or angel would linger on the face of the earth for several days perhaps, and so that was part of the reason they responded in the way that they did. But the third thing we learn about these until moments is that we play a role, but our hope is ultimately in the Lord. That we do have a part in this, we have a role, but our hope is in the Lord. For some reason, in God's divine wisdom, he often works through our prayers to accomplish his purposes. And as we see in this story, sometimes it's even in spite of us that he accomplishes these. For anyone who thinks that there's no humor in the Bible, this is direct evidence. To the contrary, this is a really funny story, actually, because the people who are praying fervently for Peter are shocked when the prayer is answered. And then we have Rhoda, the, the great servant girl at the door who didn't answer and goes back. And they're saying, you're, you're crazy. This isn't actually happening Maybe the fate of James weakened their faith? We don't know. But obviously, they were surprised, very surprised, in the way that the Lord answered their prayer. Now, this shows me that our confidence is not in the human participants in the story. We can easily think that, that these characters who are in Scripture are somehow way more holy than we are. They're in a class set apart from us. But look at Peter in that whole middle section. He was kind of helpless, just doing what the angel said half sleepily. We have Rhoda who leaves Peter outside and goes back to the others. We have the believers who don't even believe that Peter is there in person. This isn't exactly the great faith of a great church as we might perceive it. In verse 11 and verse 17 kind of bookends in this section, we have Peter saying, it's the Lord The Lord is the one who did this. It's the power of God to overcome evil. I like what Anglican uh, biblical scholar N.T. Wright has to say about this story. He says, I find this all strangely comforting, partly because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute, doubt the next sort of people, as most Christians that we know. And partly I find it comforting because it would be easy for skeptical thinkers to dismiss this story of Peter's release from jail as a pious legend, except for the fact that nobody constructing a pious legend out of thin air would have made up this ridiculous little story of Rhoda and the praying but hopeless church. It has the ring of truth, ordinary truth down to earth truth at the very moment that it is telling us something truly extraordinary and heaven on earth-ish. So this is a great encouragement to me. How many times have I felt, have we felt, like we don't qualify to pray? Just because I, I can't believe like other people do. I don't have that kind of belief. It reminds me of Uh, Mark chapter 9 when the man whose son was demonized came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you can do anything, and what does Jesus say to him? He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And I love the man's response here. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we all know what that feels like. Yeah, I I, I I don't. Yes. oh, Oh, Lord, help me, please. Or Matthew chapter 17, this mustard seed faith, where Jesus says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And as we're kind of wrapping up, I think this also addresses two objections or concerns that we often have, maybe when we're talking about this topic. And one objection is, Isn't isn't this kind of prayer presumptuous? Aren't you demanding something from God? And the answer is no, because we do pray boldly, but we also at the same time pray humbly. Because even Jesus prayed, uh, Lord, deliver me from this hour, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer doesn't manipulate God. That's not what we're trying to do. Manipulation of God is called magic. Instead, prayer acknowledges God's place of power and supremacy. It's a posture of our hearts and even bodies of submission. I love uh, at the end of morning prayer, this prayer of John Chrysostom in the Book of Common Prayer, where at the end of it says, Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions, as may be best for us. A second objection is, what if I pray the wrong thing? I don't want to pray for something that God doesn't want. And I think of Romans chapter eight, 26 and 27, where we don't know what to pray actually, but the spirit does. And the spirit prays for us according to God's will. And then of course, in Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25, uh, the author says that Jesus is living to make intercession for us. He's at the right hand of God praying for us. And so we do pray boldly and humbly. We're called to do that. We pray fervently. And God takes what we pray, and he actually answers it according to his purposes. And sometimes it's the answer that we're looking for, and other times it isn't. But we are always called to pray in a way that, that ultimately accomplishes God's purposes because he's the one who is doing it. Peter is rescued. John dies a martyr's death. We have no idea why that's the case. We do know that through both of them, the kingdom of God advances. The rest is mystery to us. I know that many of you have recently crossed into an until moment. So what do we do? We pray. We pray together. We pray with tenacity. We pray with intensity. We pray with urgency. And we pray knowing that in response to the prayers of the church the power of god overcomes the power of evil even in the face of setbacks or even in our fragile faith in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit